The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 12, Texas, Part 1. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, so welcome back. Um, first, let me apologize for putting this episode out a little bit late. It couldn't be helped thanks to the fact that life has interfered with my ability to write episodes. I'll not bore you with the details, but um, while this episode is a little bit late, the next one, or the next few, should be on time. I'll talk about that in a moment. But before we get into all that, let me remind you to follow the show on Twitter, at American HisCast. You can also go to the website and sign up for email updates. I don't send out email very often, but I plan on trying to send out an email once a week from here on out. So hopefully I can get that going. And if you're uh, enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends or associates who are interested in history as well. And please give us a rating or a review on iTunes. Finally, if you have uh, any questions or comments, feel free to email me. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Okay, so this episode is coming out about a week or so later than originally planned. Part of the reason is that I spent eight days in Salt Lake City reading um, a ton of AP World History essays, and when I came back, I was just exhausted. So I wasn't able to get the episode written quickly enough to record and release by the 15th of June. Secondly, I had a bit of writer's block. So that made it doubly difficult. And finally, uh, I recently did the first anniversary episode, which is a joint episode with myself and the host of the Age of Victoria podcast, Chris Fernandez Peckham. We're talking for over an hour about the American War for Independence. And that one will be released a bit earlier than the actual anniversary. Um, This episode will come out on July 1st, just in time for um, Independence Day. And then our narrative of Season 2 will continue on July 15th. Um, The episode after that is scheduled to be released on Sunday, July 29th, but at this point it might be delayed. Um, For the next few, next month or so, I'm going to be in Auburn, Alabama for a week, attending Mises University. This is basically a week-long intensive course on Austrian economics, which, if you know anything about me, you know I consider myself an Austrian when it comes to economics and government and just my way of thinking. And then about 12 days later, I'm traveling to California to present a paper to the Pacific Coast branch of the American History Association. Um, so it is a busy six weeks from now to, to early August. I'm hoping I can build up a head of steam here in the next 10 days and knock out a number of scripts. If I can do that, then hopefully by August or September – we can get back on to our normal schedule. Um, so that's just a st- short state of the podcast kind of update. I think I'll do a full update, um, maybe um, scheduled to be released simultaneously on the fifteenth uh, of July, kind of a an anniversary update. Um, but at least this should do it for now. Okay, Texas, the Lone Star State, the place I call home, and 
the cause of the war between the United States and Mexico. Now, so far, we've touched on Texas a little bit, but the next few episodes, we're going to go into the history of the region um, from its time as a Spanish colony up until the war with Mexico. Now, contrary to what most people believe, Texas was not settled right away. Yes, Texas had been claimed by Spain as early as the 16th century when Alonso Álvarez de Pineda, attempting to map the northern Gulf Coast, was the first European to see Texas. Um, While he laid claim to the area, it was for the most part ignored for the next century and a half. The first European settlements in the region were not, however, Spanish. They were French. Authorized by King Louis XIV, the French explorer La Salle, thanks to some inaccurate maps and some miscalculation, actually landed at Mata Gorda Bay and constructed Fort St. Louis. Now, in many ways, similar to uh, initial English efforts to colonize the American Atlantic coast, this expedition was stranded thanks to the fact that one of their ships returned to France and the other two were destroyed by storms. So these guys are kind of out of luck. Um, Attempting to find the Mississippi River, La Salle and his men... um, set out overland, um, and they went as far west as the Rio Grande and as far east as the Trinity River. Disease and hardship ended up taking its toll, and eventually a third expedition was launched. Now, this one um, experienced infighting, and La Salle himself was killed in East Texas. Of course, the Spanish learned of the existence of a French colony, and fearing it might threaten Spanish shipping routes, they launched several expeditions to discover the location of the French colony. Eventually, they found the ruins of the French settlement, which a few months before had been attacked by the Karankawa Indians. Um, this group of natives were pretty angry with the French and the fact that the French were stealing from the natives, and so they got their revenge. Now, as you can probably imagine, the Spanish did not take too kindly to the French coming into what the Spanish felt was their territory. You should also be aware of the fact that these empires, unlike modern nation-states, they did not have strong fixed borders. Um, The borders were often hazy. You knew that if you were in what is modern-day Mexico, you were in Spanish territory. You know, if you were in, say, the area around Chihuahua, um, you knew that this was the Spanish empire. Um, The same holds true for modern Florida. However, places like Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, um, they were claimed by Spain. And, but there were no Spanish settlements there. There were no border guards. And even the maps had no marked borders between the empires. And often, um, these empires laid claim to the same lands. And so possession of the claim land in the form of settlements was extremely important. Now, thanks to the French, the first attempt to create Spanish settlements in East Texas took place in 1691. Um, That's when the Spanish appointed General Domingo Terán de los Rios as the first governor of Texas. This first attempt was unsuccessful. Yes, a mission was established. Actually, two missions were created. But when the governor left the region later that year, most of the missionaries returned south with him, leaving only three friars and nine soldiers to man the colony. Soon the remaining Spaniards were forced to flee the area thanks to the outbreak of smallpox, for which they were blamed. Thus ended the first attempt at colonization by the Spanish, and for the next two decades, the area was ignored. 
Now, just a footnote to all this. The settlement in what is today the state of Texas, or the first settlement, I should say, was in modern-day El Paso, Texas. In 1680, um, the Puebloan peoples of northern New Mexico rose up and revolted against their Spanish overlords. That revolt, known as the Pueblo Revolt, started in Taos and successfully ejected the Spanish from the province of New Mexico. The survivors, totaling approximately 1,900 people, made their way to El Paso, where some of them settled. So if you were including this far corner of Texas as Texas, then that was the first settlement. However, the Spanish at that point did not, and so for now, we will not. Eventually, in 1711, Spain decided to try again, and by 1716, thanks to the help provided by the French in Louisiana, there were four missions and one presidio in East Texas. Um, Just a footnote, if you aren't sure what presidio is, that's just Spanish for fort. You even had some female settlers in Spanish Texas at this point. So finally, about 200 years after the Spanish successfully conquered the Aztec Empire, they established a foothold in Texas. Speaking of Mexico, in the areas in what is today northern Mexico, the Spanish had a fairly easy time of establishing settlements. The natives here either declined due to disease and war, they fled, they submitted to Spanish authority, or they were assimilated into the new Spanish colonial society. As historian Brian DeLay notes in his excellent book, which I highly recommend, War of a Thousand Deserts, this area had a growing population of people who were of Spanish descent, as well as enslaved and free Africans, combined with immigrants of mixed heritage. Thus, provinces such as Sonora, Nueva Vizcaya, uh, Nuevo León, and even Nuevo Santander developed quickly and contained an incredibly mixed or diverse population. As DeLay says, quote, the conquest of indigenous populations, the development of the mining and ranching economy, and the rise of such a mixed regional society, all of this testified to Spain's capacity to transform the new world, end quote. However, when Spain attempted to push north into what is modern Texas, New Mexico and Arizona, things were quite different. Here they came across deserts and dry, difficult mountains, as well as a sea of grass. While they were able to establish islands of Spanish power, especially in northern New Mexico, um, these were just that. These were islands of power surrounded by territory, which was ruled by Indians, if it was ruled by anyone. One of these islands was San Antonio. Founded in 1718, it served as the makeshift capital of Texas, but the village, like the province, languished in isolation. Historian Andrew Torget notes, quote, when the governor of Texas filed a report on the region in 1803, his assessment of San Antonio was grim, end quote. The village had no commerce or industry, which would support the 2,500 people who called the town home. While the 18th century was one in which the town failed to prosper, The 19th was worse thanks to the ravages of the Mexican War for Independence. In 1813, the town was captured by the rebels, and they executed the governor. Of course, this generated a response, and the Spanish responded in severe fashion, launching a bloody military campaign to recapture the province, killing hundreds of people in the process, and creating hundreds of refugees who were attempting to flee the violence. If one was able to survive this, he found himself living life in a territory under siege. However, the rebels weren't the only ones who were emboldened by Spanish weakness. Comanches and Apaches launched endless raids on Spanish settlements to take what few horses, cattle, and crops were still there for the taking. 
Thus, by 1819, thanks to drought, war, famine, and Indian raids, the population in and around San Antonio had dropped to approximately one-third of what it had been just two decades before. To make matters worse, years of drought ended with an epic rainstorm, which began on the evening of July 1819, in July 1819. Torrential rains caused the San Antonio River to break over its banks and destroy the village. No one was spared, as even the royal governor himself lost everything. The royal stables were ruined, and all livestock was lost. Extensive damage meant that most, if not all, of the town was uninhabitable. The stores of corn were damaged, and there would now be no harvest, as even the fields just outside of the town had been destroyed by the flooded waters. The governor wrote to his supporters in Monterrey and Mexico City, begging both to send whatever aid they could in an effort to save the town. The flood had, the governor would later note, simply exposed a century of neglect and mismanagement by Spanish authorities when it came to the province of Texas. Add to that the decade of war, and it was obvious the, Span the already weak Spanish presence had eroded to a point of being almost non-existent. In letter after letter, Martinez ra railed against what he saw as the Spanish authorities' willful abdication of their responsibilities, complaining that they had essentially abandoned Tejanos, as Spaniards in Texas were called, to their enemies. However, what Martinez was unaware of was that, and again I'm referring to Andrew Torgett's book, um, Seeds of Empire, Cotton Slavery, and the Transformation of the Texas Borderlands, 1800-1850, powerful forces had been undermining Spanish power in the Texas borderlands in ways that Mexico City could not control. A revolution in cotton that began in Europe during the eight, early 1800s, thanks to the British textile industry and its insatiable appetite for cheaper cotton, unleashed an economic storm that crossed the Atlantic and reshaped the continent of North America. One of the largest migrations in American history then began as hundreds of thousands of Americans moved into the South, especially the Gulf Coast area, states like Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana, which would become the heartland of the American cotton kingdom. By the time Martinez was despairing for Texas, the revolution in cotton growing had turned the southeastern United States into one of the, if not the, engines of the new worldwide cotton economy. Since this was happening in a region that bordered the northeastern edge of New Spain, it was inevitable that the forces unleashed by cotton would make their way into Texas. How did this affect Spanish Texas? As Americans flooded into the southeastern United States, they not only created towns and farms based on the cotton economy, but a secondary market sprang up, which was geared towards supplying those towns and farms with what they needed. Indians living in Texas thus increased the frequency and violence of their raids against the Spanish, as they attempted to acquire the items needed to feed the voracious appetite of the cotton industry with the horses and mules it needed. Further, illegal trading posts popped up in East Texas, and smugglers began using the Texas coast to move enslaved Africans into the flourishing slave markets which had risen in the Mississippi River Valley. The result was, as Torget notes, a reorientation of the economic and military power along the U.S.-Texas border, as communities like San Antonio were now forced to expend precious resources on repelling invaders while, at the same time, Spain's power was eroded. Another historian who mentions the fact 
that East Texas was tied in economically to the American state by Louisiana by the eve of the Mexican War is Andres Resendez. In his book, Changing National Identities at the Frontier, Texas and New Mexico, 1800-1850, Resendez not only shows how the economy of eastern Texas would be tied into that of Louisiana, but he also does something which others do not discuss, and I want to mention it here. Resendez notes that identity in this world was fluid and was forged in the crucible of anti-colonial movements, civil wars, intertribal alliances, utopian schemes, and harebrained land ventures. Another further insight that he gives, and one which you should keep in mind as we go further into Season 2, is the fact that identity is a choice, and those choices follow a situational logic. Thus, whether one is Mexican or Texan depended on who was asking the question. If, say, Mexican governmental officials were asking the questions and the date was, say, um, 1833, one might answer Mexican, while if the date was, say, 1837 and the question was not Mexican, one might answer Texan. Okay, so we mentioned the fact that Texas was isolated from the rest of New Spain, but we haven't really said why. Sure, you know by now that several attempts were made after the French began eyeing the region, to create a permanent Spanish presence by constructing forts and missions, most of which failed to be successful. Again, why? The reports from Spanish officials in Texas give insight to this problem. They indicate that a lack of support from Mexico City, too few troops, heavy-handed trade restrictions, along with poor roads, and the lack of a shipping port, all combined to retard the economic growth of the colony. That lack of economic growth meant there was no reason for people living in New Spain's interior to abandon the safety and security of the established colony for a dangerous life on the northern frontier. Thus, by 1800, you had San Antonio, the capital and most developed town in the province, which contained about 2,500 people. Downstream, 100 miles, was the town of La Bahia del Espíritu Santo, a village of 700 people living around a dilapidated presidio and two missions. These settlements were dependent on ranching, horses, cattle, and goats, all of which provided what was, at best, a meager existence. Lastly, you had Nacadoches, founded in the 1770s and home to about 800 hardscrabble settlers. This settlement was isolated by hundreds of miles from any other Spanish settlement, and it was located near the border with Louisiana. The Spaniards here survived on ranching, as did their fellow Spaniards in other parts of the region. However, they also relied on trade in not only legal goods, but illegal contraband items, such as slaves. Thus, no matter what the royal authorities in Madrid thought, the reality was that Spain never truly had control of Texas. Power lay in the hands of the numerous Indian tribes, whose frequent clashes with the Spanish in the region helped to add to the region's reputation for lawlessness and violence. And this is another reason that the population stayed low as far as the numbers are concerned. I mean, why would you want to move to this place if it's got a reputation for lawlessness and violence, right? Okay, so let's look at the Indians in Texas. First, we have the Caddos of the eastern part of the state. They dominated the area along the border with Louisiana, farming and trading with others, including the Wichitas and the Kickapoos. The central part of the province had tribes like the Tonkawas and the Wacos, who depended on hunting, 
while the Karankawas lived in the swampy land of the Texas Gulf Coast. Um, the Lipan Apache, they roamed and dominated the central and western portions of the state on horseback, hunting buffalo and raiding weaker tribes that they came upon. And then finally you had the Comanches, acknowledged by all as the masters of the region. They operated out of the central and western plains, ruling what historian Pekka Hamelainen refers to as the Comanche Empire, which stretched across Texas and New Mexico. Now, one of the myths about Texas and the relationship between Europeans and Indians is that it was always one of violence. Exchange or trade between Europeans and Indians existed almost from the beginning. Yes, violence existed, but as historian Gary, Gary Clayton Anderson points out in his book titled The Conquest of Texas, Ethnic Cleansing in the Promised Land, 1823-1875, part of the reason that the Spanish were not successful is that the Wichitas and the Cados were too far north of their missionary outpost in San Antonio, while tribes like the Apache and Comanches were too mobile and too independent to succumb to Spanish authority. While every attempt by the Spanish um, to exert domination over Texas and its Indian inhabitants had ended in failure, it was not all for naught. The Spaniards were able to broker agreements with Comanches, Wichitas, Tonkawas, and Apaches in the late 18th century, which allowed them, the Spanish, to expand Mexican-style ranching into southern Texas and, at the same time, the development of larger Indian livestock herds. The Comanches, in possession of more horses than any other Indian tribe, even learned to breed mules. As noted above, this was an increasingly important uh, commodity in the markets of the southern United States. The peace between the natives and the Spanish which would last from the 1780s until 1810, meant the Indians of the Southern Plains, and Texas especially, were able to create a political economy that thrived on an ordered and peaceful acquisition of wealth. The Wichitas and the Caddos were both excellent farmers who produced large crops, while at the same time, most of the Plains people, yes, they tended to avoid agriculture, but they were able to develop a pastoral economy in which they raised horses and mules. Using their regular hunting of buffalo, they also produced meat, hides, tallow, jerky, and livestock, which would then be traded in the markets of towns such as San Antonio, um, Laredo, and Santa Fe, um, from which they then found their way into the economy of the Spanish New World Empire. You also had an intertribal market, where one group might have a surplus of bison meat or horses, and another had extra supplies of corn or beans, and these two would then trade for what they lacked. Further, there was also Spanish-manufactured goods which entered the market. The entire process would be controlled by chiefs or senior males within the native societies. Often using councils, they negotiated agreements with other tribes and Europeans. These leaders often came into their position of authority, at first through demonstrated bravery and leadership and warfare. They then maintained their authority through the redistribution of goods to the people, which added to their status. So think of the Anglo-Saxons and Germanic peoples of the Middle Ages. If you've studied the epic tale of Beowulf, you probably remember the point about kings being givers of gifts. This giving of gifts enhanced the power and authority of the king. The same thing is going on here. Now, here's the thing about all this. 
these chiefs were often opposed to war, especially war with their exchange partners, as it led to a disruption of the economic system they had constructed. Again, Anderson tells us, quote, Indeed, chiefs often bonded themselves to their fellow exchange partners, senior leaders in other villages or European towns, through alliances. Such agreements were negotiated and maintained by the giving of presents, end quote. So these reciprocal relationships were, in fact, so important to life in both Texas and New Mexico that the Spanish had to agree to honor them or face war, and going to war against, say, the Comanches was not an option. Remember, the Spanish already had been defeated by the native peoples in Texas time and time again. So raising, uh, raiding, I should say, and warfare of any kind was reserved for those who lacked a reciprocal relationship. For the Comanches, this included their enemies, the Pawnees, the Arapahoes, the Cheyennes, and the Sog Indians to the north, and the Tonkawas, and even the Lipan Apaches to the south. The Wichitas and the Caddos had um, some of the same enemies and would often join with the Comanches. Now, once the Mexican War of Independence against Spain begins in 1718, raiding is extended into northern Mexico. And finally, raiding was often conducted by young men who are seeking to improve their status and acquire power and wives in Plains society. Therefore, even within these societies, there was tension, <clears throat> often driven by honor and shame, violence and kinship, diplomacy and war, all of which were part and parcel of Indian life. It is this gift-giving um, part of the treaty-making process which would cause Mexico heartache and pain. Remember, the fledgling Mexican nation was basically broke in the 1820s and 30s. The last thing it could afford was to give gifts to native peoples in order to cement a treaty. Of course, the reality was the Mexicans couldn't afford not to give gifts to native peoples in order to avoid war. And the war that would come, the raids by Indians um, like the Comanches, would serve to weaken the Mexican government and army, while at the same time making them look like an inviting target for conquest by the land-hungry republic to their north, the United States. Just how devastating could Indian raids be? Historian and specialist in borderlands history David J. Weber argues that in the 1820s and 30s, as Mexican ecclesiastical authority over its former subjects eroded, her military supremacy over the area also began to crumble. The policies of the 18th century, which we mentioned earlier, had created a delicate web of peace between the Spanish and their Indian neighbors. In essence, Texas, under the Spanish, um, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, was what um, Stanford historian Richard White calls a middle ground. Thus, the decades after independence saw relations worsen to such an extent that by 1846, impending war with the United States was less frightening to frontier peoples than was war with the Indians. Okay, that's all for today. I think that's quite a bit of information for you to digest. The next episode is our bonus anniversary episode, which I think you will enjoy. It is a massive episode, clocking in at over an hour. I think it's something like an hour and 45 minutes. Um, so you're definitely going to have plenty of um, content to listen to in the next few weeks. After that, we will get back to the narrative and to Texas, and that episode is already longer than this one, 
so I'm going to make up for the fact that I've fallen a little behind in our production schedule. Until next time, good day.